This is KMTT. The week begins with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavoy, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavoy. Almost every sefer. Every mechaber of shutim that we've discussed this year has been either someone who was born, raised in Europe and wrote tshuvos still in Europe, or people who learned in Europe and eventually came to Eretz Yisrael and printed their svarim there. There were one or two who really were born in Eretz Yisrael, lived in Eretz Yisrael. Today, for the first time that I remember, we will discuss tshuvas written by an American who came on Aliyah. Someone who learned in America, received chinuch in America, came to Eretz Yisrael, he wrote tshuvas that are famous in today's halachic world. I'm referring to Harav Yehuda Henkin, who was born in the United States, received his education in the United States. He had the zchus of being the grandson of Hagon Harav Yosef Eliyahu Henkin, whose name probably needs no further elaboration. And the young Rav Henkin, who lives today in Yerushalayim, had the zchus of learning with his grandfather. He did come on Aliyah, and he was the Rav of the Bet Shan. After he left Bet Shan, he had various positions in the rabbinic world, including among, the, among them, before I came to Yeshivat HaRetzion, I understand that he used to give shiurim in the yeshiva, which were more halachic-oriented, and I was told that the shiurim were outstanding in their development from the basic yisodot, from the foundations, until the Pesach Halacha. He printed a number of volumes of Shut Bnei Banim, which have tremendous haskamot from various um, of the gedolim of our generation. Rab Moshe, for example, wrote, Yarad l'omek hadinim b'bkiyut v'charifut. That means he went, to, he dealt with the depths of the issues with great erudition, great keen understanding. Rav Eliezer Waldenberg, that's it's Eliezer, Rav Avad Yosef, Rav Avram Shapiro, Rav Mordechai Eliyahu Zatzal, all gave him haskamos. Rav Mordechai Eliyahu wrote about him, Makifat Abayam Mikot Tadea Harishonim Vachonim Vuchoraz Lo Anisle. He envelops the Problem from all areas. He knows Rishonim, Achronim. He, he, nothing escaped him. He's still continuing. Rav Yudah Henkin still continues to write, to publish, both in Hebrew and in English. There was a time when I used to receive um, the chuvos or different articles that he wrote in the mail when he sent out to different people. I don't know if he has that same practice today. But we see his prolific writing in many areas. 
Obviously, the name of the Sefer, Shut B'nei Banim, was chosen to give to Kavod to his grandfather, Hagon Rav Henkin. And one of the points that you notice very carefully in the Sefer is that many times Rav Yehuda Henkin develops and, in a sense, defends the opinion of his great-grandfather. It is his grandfather who is great. One of the issues that Rav Henkin wrote about in B'nai Banim is obviously a continuation of his grandfather's opinion. In yeshiva world, there's become a practice of eating or making kiddush before Tkiyas HaShofar or in Rosh Hashanah. Rav Henkin Sr. was very opposed to this custom. In fact, I heard a rumor, I don't know if it's true because I heard it as a rumor, that when he was very, very ill, Rav Henkin almost automatically repeated you're not allowed to eat before Tkiyas HaShofar. Rav Henkin, Rav Yudha Henkin in Shuvat B'nei Banim, in the first volume, Simon Yudalit, he has a Shuvah to someone who attempted to defend the Minig of the Yeshiva world that they should, that they could eat before Tkiyas. It had been suggested by the senior of Henkin that if people really feel they should eat, it would be improper to make Kiddush before you fulfill the mitzvah daraisa. In a sense, it would be better to first have Tkiyas to be Yushav, blow the 30 kolos where you fulfill a mitzvah of the, daraisa, of the Torah, and then go ahead and make Kiddush. The person who wrote to defend the custom of the yeshivas, uh, said that many people would be somewhat ashamed to go out uh, after the Tkiyos de Miyusha, between the Tkiyos de Miyusha and Shemun Esrei, and therefore they would come to Sakonos de Fashas. Rav Yehuda Henkin points out, what, what are you talking about? There's a Safik Pikuach Nefesh involved here. These are people who fast in Yom Kippur. You ate the night before. You can drink water before davening. What do you, how could it possibly be an issue of pigrach nefesh? It is true, of course, if there would be a, a, an issue of pigrach nefesh, then of course you tell the people to eat. But that's not too likely. And even if there would be something like that, then we should tell him to eat. But why should we tell the community to, to uh, make, to eat before Tkiyas HaShofer? Rav Henkin, Senior was very meticulous, very careful about issues to do with health. And Rav Yehuda Henkin claimed that his grandfather had said that today we all have the din of an istinist, of people who are very uh, meticulous, fussy, whatever you want to say. And therefore, in many respects, we could find uh, a hatter for certain things. But not for this. I never heard that anyone said you could eat because of pigrach nefesh. There is a tshuva of the chasam sofer, but it's shriach tzibosh and nichpeh. Now nichpeh implies that something's wrong with him, and in that case you can discuss it, but but that's not the normal case. Therefore, Rav 
Yud Henkin said, and he reiterated this in other volumes as well, Lechatchila, you should not eat at all until the end of Musaf. There's no problem of fasting, and he explains why. Some people have a custom of drinking water before davening. If you drink water before davening, then technically you're not fasting. The idea that people walk out en masse, he thinks that's really wrong. There's no source for this in any of this of this farm. But he didn't think that at all we should we should find a heter. If he said that you should find a heter, Rav Yudankin even suggested that eating before before Kriyas HaTorah would be better than eating before Tkios. Because it seems to be an insult to the Tkios that you just walk out before Tkios. Whereas if you walk out before Kriyas HaTorah, there's something that you normally, or people know that you usually go to hear Kriyas HaTorah, he didn't feel that the insult was as great. It's known that Rav Salavechik also did not approve of the yeshiva custom of eating before Tkios. The way I understood that the difference between Rav Henkin and Rav Soloveitchik is that Rav, Rav, Rav Henkin really discussed the problem of eating before a mitzvah. When a person has a mitzvah that, he's, that is incumbent upon him, a mitzvah the raisa for sure that's incumbent upon him, it's not proper to eat before you fulfill the mitzvah. I heard in the name of the Rav, I don't think I heard this directly from him, but it seems to me that it was said that the Rav felt that it's not a question of a halachic iser per se, that you can perhaps find the heter under certain conditions. He felt it's not appropriate. When we talk about the blowing shofar, with all that it means, both in the world of technical halacha and the world of emotional response to Jews when they blow shofar, ha'itaka shofar ba'ir, the emotional involvement of blowing the shofar is so great, how could a person feel capable of eating before Tkiyas HaShofer? How could a person worry about his own physical situation before he blows Shofer? So the Rav Henkin was strongly opposed to this custom, did suggest an alternate suggestion if absolutely necessary, and I think the Rav was also opposed to this custom. Nevertheless, it's interesting that in the Yeshiva world, it's very customary to have this break and make Kiddush before Tkias HaShofar. And as I said, Rav Henkin was strongly opposed to this custom. One of the areas that you see in great deal of discussion in the various volumes of Bnei Banim are issues that deal with women and specific issues that have come up more in the late 20th century than other times in Jewish history. One of the questions that Rav Henkin discussed is the possibility of women saying Kaddish in the Ezra's Nashim in the Shul. In Chelek Beis of Bnei Banim, Simen Zayin, Rav Henkin wrote a tshuva in 1984 about this issue. And the, one of the questions that was raised there is since Kaddish can only be said with a 
a minion of men. So women stand in the Ezra's Nashim, which is not part of the main shul. And therefore, he felt it wouldn't be saying Kaddish together with a minion. This was the opinion of the um, person who wrote to Rav Henkin and argued that he could, a woman could not say Kaddish in the women's section because it was a separate area where there's no minion. Rav Henkin pointed out that he'd never discussed this with his grandfather, but he thinks that maybe the person who asked him thought that Rav Henkin allowed women to say Kaddish without a minion. His grandfather never said that. His grandfather did say that women can say Kaddish. And then Rav Henkin goes on to explain in a, in a rather lengthy discussion how the women's section is considered part of the Bet Knesset. He explains the structure of the building of most Batei Knesset, how they're built, to explain that the women are considered in within the same area as the men, and therefore women could say Kaddish in that in that area. It's considered part of part of the minion. Now, one of the questions was uh, that there were people who said that women may not say Kaddish. Rav Yudah Hankin argues this would be perhaps in a situation where only one person said Kaddish. It, there was a custom. In fact, I think in many communities this is still the custom of the German people that only one person said Kaddish. They used to take turns who would say that one Kaddish, but there was only one Kaddish said. So Rav Yudah Henkin discusses the situation in various communities, and he points out that he thinks that that was, in general, the custom of one person saying Kaddish, and therefore the people who objected to women to women saying Kaddish might have objected because of the fact that only one person said Kaddish. But today that we all say Kaddish in almost every community, he felt there was nothing wrong with saying Kaddish, men and women together. And of course, today this issue has been widely discussed in many, many svarim. Rav Henkin himself refers to this again in Chelek Gimel, in Simen Chavzayin, where he discussed an issue that we'll also discuss uh, in a minute, but he mentions there that a historical discussion of really when this custom of one person saying Kaddish stopped, when was the custom that people said Kaddish together, like as we do today. He also pointed out that the Svardim, who did say Kaddish together, also have a custom quoted in the Stechemed that a woman should not say Kaddish. But he said in that in that case, there we have to remember that many of the Svardi shuls didn't even have an Ezra's Nashim. Women didn't come to shul. 
even on Shabbos. And Rav Henkin testifies that in the Bet Shan, he said that many shuls in the Bet Shan did not have a mechitza for women. One or two women would come and they would stand in the, in the Ezra's, in the, in the, in the men's section. And Rav Henkin actually has a tshuva about that. If, in a, under, uh, in a rare say, or circumstances, like occasionally if a woman comes to shul, could she stand in the back of the shul? But it, at the time when we stand in the mechitza, within the mechitza, and men say Kaddish at the same time, Rav Henkin thought there is no issue at all of women saying Kaddish. He mentions that Rav Moshe Feinstein in the tshuva said, that for all generations a woman used to walk into shul, and Rab Moshe wrote write in writes in Igras Moshe Chelik Arachaim Chelik Hey Simon Yud Beis that women used to walk into shul occasionally a woman to to collect money or to say kaddish, and he talks there about a base medrash without a mechitza. Rav Moshe at the end said Lemaset Tzarich Iyon Vitali Barbeinyanim. Rav Moshe was hesitant about paskening if this is really permitted. But, it is, it, Rav Henkin pointed out that the problem of saying Kaddish was not the issue. Perhaps the issue was to say Kaddish without a mechitza. And therefore, Rav Henkin certainly thought a woman could say Kaddish in her, in her, uh, in, in the Ezra's Nashim. The, uh, many people have discussed this issue Rav, Rav Aaron Salavechik in his uh, Sefer on Avelus, Od Yisrael Yosef B'ni Chai, he mentions that, that now that many women are fighting for women's rights, about other things in Shul too, so he said if we would stop women from saying Kaddish, well, because women can say Kaddish. So we should not stop women from saying Kaddish. I heard from a very, very reliable source that Rav Salavechik said in the Vilna Gons Klois, women would say Kaddish. So the area, the discussion uh, still goes on. People still write articles about women saying Kaddish. We, Rav Henkin's position is rather clear. He did, in the tshuva that I just mentioned before, also raise the issue that we've discussed actually last week. Can a woman receive one of the Sheva Brachas? This question was written to Rav Henkin from a young lady who was about to get married. And she explained how she had learned for years. She learned four years in a Midrashah, in Eretz Yisrael. She still continues learning. And it hurt her that a woman, her friends, her relatives, could not take any part of the Simcha, of the actual tekes, the actual ceremony of the wedding. And therefore she asked many rabbis, could a woman get one of the Shevebrachis under the chuppah? And so, and, and they basically answered, it's not so clear that it's for, forbidden, but it's not acceptable. And you're, the lady who wrote it was very accept, he was very upset by it, and she asked Rav Hankin to, for his opinion. And he wrote, that there was no problem at all of giving the honor of reading the Ksuba to a woman. He said, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no Kedusha, no Bracha involved in reading the Ksuba. It's like reading any other document. And the purpose is to create a break between the Kedusha and the Suin, 
most probably because of the bracha that you make Barapi Agefen twice. So anyone can read the Ksuba. There was a minig that the, that was, that's insisted that the Messiah Kedushin himself read the Ksuba. He said, but we don't do that today. So he said, even though some places it's not proper for women to speak in public, but in a community where we're used to women speaking in public, therefore the woman, a woman could certainly read the Ksuba. And in a sense, he said it's ever, even more reliable because the woman has a friend, the, the Kala will have a friend who reads the Ksuba. She, it's a reliable, she can rely on her to, that she's reading the correct text. And you can also have a woman announce the kibudim. Like today, we have a master of ceremonies who says, who gets this kibud, not kibud, Rav Henkin Paskin. There's no problem with having a woman make those announcements. But Rav Henkin did agree that it wouldn't be proper to find a, uh, to give one of the Shevabrachas to a woman. And he quotes the issues that are involved when many people are there. So he felt that it would be a, a, a real break in, in the minig. Then he felt it, it would be improper. But one side issue that many people aren't aware of is that when there is no minion for Sheva Brachis, but a group of people are there that is not a minion, so then you add the bracha Ashabara. You don't say all the Sheva Brachas, but you say the Bracha Ashabara. So Rav Henkin points out, if women have a Mazuman by themselves, together with the Chas and the Kala, then the woman could make the Bracha Ashabara. He just uh, was not in favor of women saying one of the Sheva Brachas when there's a minion of men. And he went on in this Shuva to elaborate upon these particular issues. Some of the other issues uh, that uh, Rav Henkin was concerned with about the rights of women in today's generation include he has a he has a discussion about um, women learning Torah uh, women making a machi- uh, making mezuman and the role of men who are present when women make a, ma- a, a, a make a mezuman. He discussed women reading Megillah on the special case of Purim Meshulash. He also has a lengthy discussion about the uh, laws of mechitza in general, the laws of women covering their hair. One of the questions that he raised in this issue was one that had bothered me for a long time. The custom of women co- covering or not covering their hair at the wedding ceremony. At, when when the kala goes to the to the chuppah, so she's not married, so she goes with a veil with whatever she goes. And then afterwards, they take off the veil. And the custom, it seems to me generally that I'm aware of, is that after the yichud, women continue without Kisarosh, and I'm talking about women who are extremely makbid, that after the wedding, they'll walk with Kisarosh all the time. What is, is there a heter for women 
at the weddings, at the wedding itself, after they have had yichud, is there a hetter for them to go be, without a kisui rush, to go with their hair uncovered? The Sephardi custom is in certain Eidot HaMizrach, the custom is that they, the Chas and Kala don't have Yichud at all. They have the Erusin, they have the dinner, and afterwards the Chas and Kala go home together, and that would be considered the Yichud. The advantage of such a situation is that at that time, when at the wedding, at the dinner, the Kala is really Arusa. She's halachically engaged, but she's not married. And one could certainly explain that she need not cover her hair because she's not yet married. However, the Ashkenazi custom, there's Yichud right after the Chuppah, so in which point she's married. What is the basis for the Heter for women not to cover her hair? Rev. Henkin in the third volume of Igros of B'nai Barnim has a tshuva about this. And he is referring to a person who asked him that his grandfather, Rav Henkin, had allowed this. Interestingly enough, the younger Rav Henkin said, I don't know what you're talking about. If you'll send me a copy of what my grandfather wrote, maybe I can... I can uh, re- relate to it. But you just told me a rumor that you heard that my grandfather, some sort of a rumor that in America, that's what they did. The greatest Rabbanim in America allowed Akala to do this. So, I, first of all, the uh, Rav Hankin said, I don't understand exactly what you're uh, talking about, what you're arguing about. You're talking about uh, the custom in America, so go discuss it with the rabbis in America. And I can't tell you what my grandfather told me about this, because when I got married, he was the Masada Kedushin, but we didn't discuss this at all. However, even though Rav Hankin does not feel that he has to defend the opinion of his grandfather because he doesn't know what the opinion of his grandfather is, but it was sufficient to hear that there's a rumor that people in America uh, allow this, Rav Hankin wrote a tshuva to show that there is certainly a source, a certainly a reason to permit this minic. And he said because he discusses first the issue of covering your hair in general. Is it Doraisa or Rabbanan? And as I mentioned before, Rav Hankin has a, a, a lot of chuvas about Kisri Rosh in general. But he points out that before the Kala actually goes home, before the wedding is technically consummated, so there's no Din Doraisa at all of covering your hair, and therefore it could be a question of a minute. He also adds that the idea of covering your hair is partly because of chutzpah, because of a chashash of znus. That's, that's not appropriate. It's not a, it, that doesn't, it would not apply. This chashash would not apply on the day of the wedding. And therefore, it would be an acceptable custom not to cover your hair at the wedding. I don't think that there is a reason to argue with a custom that existed in America if the Gedolim did not object to it. So, there is a, a, a basic uh, source, a basic uh, understanding where we could be matir such a, 
in this situation. Even though the time is getting short, I don't want to suggest that all of Rav Henkin's tshuvas dealt with in Yanei Nashim. Many of the tshuvas were very important in terms of Minhagim of Shul, in terms of Kashrus. But I'd like to mention a tshuva that was written in Chelek Beis of of the of the of the uh, of Bnei Banim. There, Rav Henkin discussed the question of of Havganot for the Jews of Russia. Now, this is certainly an issue of the 20th century. The Jewel was written in Tavshin Memchet, and a fellow had asked him about the great protest that the Jews in America embarked upon in, in Washington. The, when the issue of Jews for Soviet Jewry began its protest, there were many great rabbinim in America who objected to it, who objected to protests in general. Mayor Kahana once told me that when he was in the Mir Yeshiva, so he was one of the organizers of these type of protests, and the Rosh Yeshiva called him in, Rav Kamanovich, and said to him that this is not the Jewish way, we shouldn't do this. Of uh, Mayor Khan, of course, was very outspoken in his opinion, and he had a great debate with his Rosh Hashiva about this point. Rav Enkin, interestingly enough, begins with a Gemara. There's a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, quoted in, in Tanis and other sources, that when there was a certain Gzeira against the Jews, that they shouldn't learn Torah, they shouldn't have bris milah, they went to take advice from a certain lady who had contacts with the leaders of Rome. And she told, advised them how to protest. So, you see, says Rav Henkin, that protest existed from the time of the Gemara. Of course, we should discuss the distinctions between their type of protest, our type of protest. But one thing that you see from, from the Gemara, a source in the Gemara, that not only did they have protests, but you see that they went to ask the person who had knowledge of the situation how to go about protesting. They didn't go to necessarily to the God of Hadar. They went to a matronisa They went to a certain matron, a certain lady, who had contacts with the Roman government. So they, she was the one who discussed with them what to do. So he said that today we should definitely consult with with the great experts in relations of the world, in public relations, relations with foreign countries, and we should find out what would be the best way to arrange these protests, what the, what benefit they have, and he points out that to actually to protest in America, in a sense, is greater than protesting in Russia. First of all, it's more dangerous in Russia, and perhaps you could discuss whether you are allowed to uh, protest when there might be violence as a result to you, as a result of your of your protest. But he felt that public opinion was so strong that protesting in America has a great influence in Russia. And therefore, he said, we should definitely discuss this with the great 
diplomats, the great people who understand the situation, and but basically we find in the Gemara that that such such havganot are permitted. It was told to me that when they asked Rav Salavechik about havganot uh, for the Jews of Russia, his response was to go to some professor in Colombia who was a great expert in this area and ask him the question. He said it's not a question for a Talmud Chacham to paskin, but it's a question for a politician to paskin. Again, I would like to reiterate there are many other chuvos, not just about the, the type of issues that we discussed that are found in the various volumes of B'nai Banim and uh, they have become quite important in our in our generation.